What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. I'm really excited today to share with you a conversation that I'm going to have here with a very close friend of mine, a mentor of mine, and honestly, a role model of mine. Thankfully, Dr. Michael J. Ormsby has been an incredible person in my life who has helped me with my career development um, and as well as my development as a person overall. Dr. Ormsby was my postdoc mentor at Florida State University, and my experience with him was absolutely fantastic. He is a genius when it comes to all things nutrition, exercise science, body composition. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you guys here today. Dr. Ormsby is a professor and graduate program director in the Department of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology, and he's also the director of the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine at Florida State University. His main research focuses on looking at different nutritional, supplemental, and exercise-related interventions to help improve physical performance, health, and body composition. Dr. Ormsby, Mike, how are you doing, my man? Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Joey. Very good. I'm, I'm happy to see you rolling with this podcast and have a little conversation today about all the things we've been through together. Yeah, awesome, brother. But well, for real, seriously, I really appreciate you taking time to be here. How about you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I know I gave a short little introduction. Some of the things I really want to talk about here today are tips that you would give for people that are perhaps looking or interested in following a graduate career. You've obviously worked with dozens of both undergraduate and graduate students now. So talking perhaps a little bit about our relationship, how we got in touch and some of the commonalities that students struggle with would be fantastic. And then I definitely want to get into your main research focus, um, some of the studies that you're working on currently, some of the studies you've worked on in the past. A lot of the topics that I cover on this podcast are just general health and fitness stuff. Very, very basic. But I know people are hungry for more advanced topic, perhaps. And those are those are some things I'm definitely excited to talk about. Yeah, I mean... My story is probably like many students in the U.S. who are coming up and, you know, going through high school and then in sort of the track of, I want to pursue college education. And so what was cool for me is that my whole life, I was an athlete playing different sports. And when I got to college, I really wanted to play ice hockey. So I was, I was playing ice hockey and also trying to figure out what to do. And, and that's where I took a class from Paul Arciero, who's an exercise physiologist and a, a mentor of mine. And it just ignited this fire. Like his, his, the way he taught intro to exercise science was something that just captivated me. And so I found myself probably like you, like for fun, reading textbook or muscle yeah. magazines or you know anything related. And even if I didn't have to for class, it was just something I wanted to know more about. Yeah. And it started pretty selfish. So I wanted to be bigger, stronger, faster. So I was yeah. reading anything I could about how to do that, you know, rep schemes, pause sets, drop sets, what could I do? How frequency, all the different things. And then luckily Dr. Arciero was into nutrition. And so I took nutrition classes from him as well, which really sort of amplified that side of it. And it really took hold. So I would say my my primary interest for how nutrition relates with exercise, always this combination. Um, ultimately, it became a little more altru altruistic where it was not just about my personal success and getting bigger, faster, stronger, but also then how to help other people. So the research that was going on at, the, at my undergrad institution, which was Skidmore College in upstate New York, it was phenomenal. And so I was able to help with 
overweight and obese, middle-aged men and women, older obese men and women. And we started these obesity trials pretty early. I was also in a scenario where I could start to look at supplements. So like, for example, we had to do a thesis as an undergrad and, and that was a research project. And I chose caffeine and ephedrine. We could give ephedrine. So we were giving caffeine and ephedrine to students and looking at just metabolic changes after an acute consumption of these things. So the interest was always there. And what happened is I decided to stay on as a, as a tech, like a research technician or assistant for Paul Arciero and his lab when I graduated. And it was like halfway into this thing. And I'm thinking, man, I'm doing a lot of work here. I wish I was getting a degree for this. And that's when it switched over and was like, hey, what master's programs are into sport, nutrition, supplementation, exercise. And so like people will probably need to know almost all jobs and things are like, who you know, what's your network, who are you connected to? And in academics, we call it your pedigree. So it's like, who, who are you linked to down the line? And so Paul introduced me to my next mentor for academics, which was Matt Vukovic. He was a professor at South Dakota State University. You know, and I grew up in Philly and then I went to upstate, you know, upstate New York. And so going to South Dakota was a huge jump for me. People thought I was nuts making that transition, but it was fabulous. So, so Matt had recently finished as the director of research for a company that was called Experimental and Applied Sciences, EAS. EAS made huge supplements, a huge supplement line. And then eventually they sold to a bigger company. But when they were small, Matt was their in-house science person. Um, hmm. And so I knew he'd be interested in these topics that I was. And it was like, you got to go where the research is something that you like to do because you do a lot of it. So I went to South Dakota, started working with Matt and, and just uh, fell in love. Again, we did more work with protein and calorie changes and caloric deficits and in athletes and in non-athletes. And it was just an eye-opening. We started to look at hormones. So finally I got into like testosterone changes and IGF-1 changes and all these things that may have to do with all kinds of things, but at the time muscle growth and recovery was sort of my, my interest, but it wasn't streamlined. You know, I finished there and was like, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I think I could carry on, but I want to make more money. And so I had family connections to like pharmaceutical, medical sales and things like that. And I had a background in sports and physiology where I could probably do well at it. So I was enticed by it and I thought, you know, put some feelers out there. So I, I, I was looking that way to entice financially. And then I was also looking for PhD programs because I felt like this was my opportunity to, if I was going to do the PhD, I wanted to finish it mm -hmm. instead of going to work and coming back. Cause I knew just my personality was I would, I would get into it and try to crush this next career. And I don't think I would come back yeah. very easily. So I did, I, I, I applied to two schools as well as these other things in sort of business arenas. And I got into Purdue and East Carolina university. And then at East Carolina university, I met my next mentor who was Dr. Bob Hickner and Bob Hickner was at the Brody school of medicine and at in East Carolina university and did work in exercise and sports supplements, but he did it probably another layer of mechanistic work. And he got into microdialysis and where you can put these tiny little probes into adipose tissue or muscle or various places and, and look at real time in real time, what's coming out of the cells. And so that was sort of the next layer for me. And he had a big study. He had sponsorship from EAS. He had NIH funding. It was kind of ramping up this whole profile. Made it through the PhD and, and was so burned out that I thought 
I'm never doing research again. <laughs> this is just, this is not for me. I don't want to struggle for grants. I, this is just something that wasn't in my wheelhouse. I thought, you know, I like people. At the same time, as I was in my PhD, I also started my side business, which was just a consulting business. So I was trying to branch out and do talks and do some work with companies that needed help with nutrition or fitness or health fairs. We, though, so I would set up where we'd bring a bunch of master's students with us and we'd set up stations and do blood pressures and heart rates and talk about various things for employees. So that was sort of simultaneous. I also love to write for the media. So I got hired as the, the science advisor for a local magazine called Achieve Magazine in Greenville, North Carolina. And I grew that to where I could go over all the content and all the health and fitness and nutrition content. And so I would get sponsors and I would write articles. I would have my friends who were into different areas at the PhD or master's program, write their articles. And so this publication came out for roughly two years while I was there. It was fun. It was a great opportunity for me to try to get into the media side of health and fitness, because as you know, like I write articles for scientists and, you know, like 15 scientists read it. But if it gets picked up by a media outlet and a reputable source, yes. hopefully many, many more people hear about the, the science that we're doing. And so it was clear to me that communication was really critical mm. to having a career in really in anything, but in academics, if you wanted to be a leader in the field and be the person giving the talks, instead of sitting in the back of the, the lecture hall, you needed to communicate well, you needed yeah. to take your information, you need to talk to individuals, you need to... Yeah, you know, let's face it, a lot of academics have trouble with with uh, with that interaction. And so it was really a, a, a place for me to step in and try to fill this gap on the academic side. And so, yeah, I was just like, this is cool. All these things are merging. Like one of my best days would be, you know, a TV interview on the news, writing an article for the magazine, finishing up in the lab and trying to finish a paper and then, you know, hanging out with my friends at the end of the day. So those are the things I really enjoyed in the field and trying to merge all those things. And that ultimately led me to a teaching job pre predominantly out of my first, um, my first job out of grad school, uh, which was back at Skidmore College. So I went full circle back to where I began nice. the journey and spent two years there as a visiting assistant professor, which was really fun. And in that place, I connected back with Paul Arciero, connected back with several other professors that are phenomenal people that I still work with to this day, as we'll talk about in a little bit. I think you helped me with some of that work. But at that end of that time, I was missing research. It was two years of very, very little research. I was finding out that I was no longer or very minimally being asked to give talks because I wasn't doing the work anymore. And so this job at FSU came open. So Florida State University popped up. It was a job for a professor of sports nutrition specifically. And I was like, holy cow, if this is ever going to work, it'll be right now. Yeah. And so Lauren was my fiance at the time, obviously my wife now. We were like, all right, let's give it a shot. So we, we, we put the application in, got hired in 2010. And now I've been here for almost 14 years, which is, which is pretty incredible. So my journey over that time was was that it was kind of winding and weaving. I never knew exactly wanted, what I wanted to do, but I just knew areas I loved. And like we talked yeah. about earlier, the train was going. I just needed to see where I would hop off. Yeah, that's awesome, man. A, a couple of things. It's funny because I remember when I first started talking with Lauren, when I was working during my PhD, she was like, oh yeah, we talked about maybe being here five or six years and, and that's it. Um, yep. And then obviously you can't predict the future, right? I, I love something that you touched on, which is the importance of communication, right? Because I think 
one of the main things that drew me towards what I do today, there were various aspects, but one of the aspects is the fact that when you publish science, it's only read within an academic circle, right? And I think it's really, really important to share that information with the general public, because at the end of the day, the general public is paying <laughs> for that research. And two, even if they wanted to, it's really hard to read research and understand what it actually says unless you have a formal education in research, right? And I, similar to you, started because I wanted to learn about how to build muscle, how to be healthier, et cetera. And so I watched all of these YouTube videos, read a ton of online articles, and it was extremely helpful for me. And now that I know more, I understand that some of that information wasn't necessarily correct, right? And it's really cool to have the skills to be able to read and interpret the science, and then relay that message in a very simple to understand fashion, right? So I really like the communication aspect too. What I, wa what I wanted to talk about was, it seems like throughout your journey, there's like a recurring theme. One, you enjoyed what you liked, right? So you kind of chased the things that you enjoyed doing, but perhaps you didn't know exactly what your path was going to be moving forward, right? You immersed yourself in the areas of nutrition and exercise science. And as long as you were doing what you liked and you were progressing in your career, it seemed like things kind of worked in your way, right? Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And I think, it, like you said, it started at an early time. I like sports, you know, like the yeah, whole yeah. thing as a as a teenager. Um, I want to play college sports, so I did. And then it just took off. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, like, just follow your passion because sometimes that doesn't work. But yeah. in this case, it did. And I really enjoyed these themes. And it's, you know, a lot of times I'll get students or even parents of students who are like, what's my kid going to do and exercise science and make any money? at yeah. the end of the day. And that's sometimes a hard question to answer. And I most commonly will talk about ways to approach that where you use the degree to do something else. So you use it yeah. as a background for physical therapy or PA or PT or medical school or nursing or whatever to have this background in physiology and exercise, which is critical. I think those professions could use more of that. But if they stay in a traditional academic route, like I ended up doing, like, oh, they're not going to make any money, da, da, da. Well, there's, there's, there is some creativity that has to be had. And I think you and I have had these conversations at length with what do you do to be creative, to make something yeah. out of what you're passionate about? And that's not easily done, but it is something that needs to be talked about. Yeah. In terms of chasing your passion, I think it's easy to say that it seemed like the path was clear in retrospect, right? It's like, I did this and then this opportunity opened and this opportunity opened. And perhaps sometimes we forget about like the mental struggles that we went through when you're going through this journey, right? Because similar to you, I kind of, um, I've always been the type of person, like people ask me like, oh, did you know you wanted to get a PhD or did you know you wanted to do this? And I'm like, no, my decisions have always been based off of, do I enjoy what I'm doing? And what opportunities do I have presented to me at the moment? And I'm just going to take the one that seems the best and kind of go from there, right? In terms of like general vision, I know I've always wanted to be in this field, but I didn't have any idea what I wanted my career to be, right? And I think we could share a little bit here about how you and I met because it's an interesting story. And it goes to show that like things do sometimes come full circle. And again, in retrospect, it's easier to connect the dots perhaps than when you're going through it. And the reason why I want to share this is because I do get these questions a lot, like younger people who perhaps don't know where they want to go with their career, people who perhaps want to coach or pursue a master's or PhD and don't necessarily know if it's the right route for them. And so we could just, I think, talk a little bit about these things because I do think it's really helpful, right? So for me, 
kind of a slightly different route. When I was doing my undergraduate degree, I've always, always cared about lifting, like just wanted to get super jacked. And unfortunately, I'm not super jacked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I always learned about these things, really cared about them. And then towards the latter end of my undergraduate career, when I started taking biochemistry courses, organic chemistry, metabolism courses, intro to exercise science courses, I really started liking this stuff. And I was like, okay, I definitely want to keep studying this stuff because it was the first time I was actually interested in school. Because growing up, I was actually a pretty bad student. I have a character trait that when I'm not really interested in something, it's really hard for me to give it 100% or even like 60%. But when I started taking these courses, I really started enjoying it. I didn't know what a graduate career entailed at all because neither of my parents went to graduate school. None of my friends went to graduate school. Coming from a, a first generation American household, like didn't have any close family friends that or doctors or anything like that. So it was a completely new experience for me. All I knew was that I can't really do much with an undergraduate degree in nutrition. Um, can't really do much at all with just an undergraduate degree in nutrition, unless you're you're going for a dietetic internship or something like that. And I knew I didn't want to do that. So I was like, okay, next step is graduate school because I enjoy school at this point. Let's go ahead and do that. And actually, originally I started with food science and I wanted to work on developing new food products. And quickly I learned that's not the way graduate school works. I took a slightly different route where I didn't necessarily look at a specific area of research that I was interested in because I didn't really even know what research was. I knew I needed a mentor. And for me, it was who do I get along with the best because I knew I was going to be working with this person long term. So I wanted to have a really good relationship with them. And that's where I met my master's and PhD mentor, Dr. Arjmandi, close friend of yours. And in that time, I also met you. And then I started learning about the work that you were doing. And I was like, oh, man, this is really cool stuff. And I remember I was really nervous. I sent you an email to meet with you to discuss the possibility of working with you. And I was, I, guys, I'm the type of person I've gotten way better about it now, but I get really nervous about like formal stuff. And to me, this was a big deal. So we set the meeting up, we met in your office and you denied me. (laughs) (laughs) No, all jokes aside, guys, Mike gets a ton of inquiries for students because he's the only person doing his kind of work at FSU. And as you can guess, a ton of students want to do sports nutrition work, right? So Mike always has a full lab and it's hard to just take on a student because taking on a student is a really big responsibility. So when I reached out to him, unfortunately, at that moment, he had a full lab. He really didn't know much about me. So I didn't have the opportunity to work with him in that moment. But this is, I think, where it's really important to talk about perseverance, right? I didn't let it bring me down. I kept going. I got my PhD under the guidance of Dr. Arjmandi in the area of clinical nutrition. So I was really looking at like disease prevention rather than optimizing performance. But I always knew that a lot of the skills that I would learn are very transferable anyways. I always say that the the main thing I got from from doing my PhD is the ability to, to think critically and like second doubt information that you get and like really learn how to dig for accurate information, right? And so talking about things coming full circle towards the end of my PhD. um, So the lab that I worked in, Mike's wife was the clinical coordinator for our lab. And her and I developed a really good relationship. My wife then started babysitting for them. And so Mike and I started to get to know each other a little bit better. And then towards the end of my PhD, I didn't know what I was going to do with my career yet. This was like in the middle of COVID 2020, 2021, around there. 
And thankfully, there was an opening for a position in his lab doing a postdoc. I didn't get the full postdoc experience. I did a, a condensed postdoc, I guess, for six months. But in that time, I had the ability to work with Mike, build a really good relationship with him. I got to work on a textbook that we wrote. So it was a really fantastic experience, right? And it just goes to show, although the path may not always be clear, as long as you like know what you want to go to, more or less, and just continue to work in that direction and continue to persevere, for the most part, things do tend to work in your favor, right? And I think one of the things I'd like to hear from you, Mike, because you've worked with so many students at this point, is what are perhaps some of like the main struggles that you see students go through in terms of like confusion or just being nervous about the future? And what are some yeah. things that you would share with that type of person? Yeah, I'm glad you shared the story because yeah, that's, that's how it goes. A lot of times you do have a door closed and it's like, okay, how do I either open it back up or knock yeah. again? Or what's another way to get to the outcome, the end outcome you want? And in almost everything, I mean, the question is almost, you have to figure out, not, not just get denied and say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to sit here. Yeah. It's okay. Now what, what can I do? What's the, what's the next direction? How do I get to where I want to go? Maybe in a new path. And so, you know, I've had students over the years, uh, grad students who ask the question is, sort of, can I, can I attend this meeting and go with you? Cause I get to travel a lot to present and the standard answer is no, I don't, I, yeah. I, that's not, not really how it works. But then once in a while, I'll have a student who will say, not, not, can I go? It's what can we do to make this a possibility? And it makes you rethink the way that you approach yeah. the whole thing. It's not just me on auto drives, getting ready and saying, no, sorry, we will get you to some other thing. It's, oh, huh. I don't know. Let's try to see if we can get some funding from this source to pay for yeah. that. And maybe your flight can get covered or if you cover your food expenses and I'll get your flight. So there was different ways that we sort of worked that out. When the question was right, it was a collaborative approach instead of just an authoritative approach. But I think it, your question as to what are students doing now and how can they get better involved? Maybe at the undergraduate level, I do still see that a lot of students are afraid to approach faculty where perhaps seen as maybe authoritative or whatever, where you just avoid them and you don't yeah. want to ask more questions. And so you leave class early. You, you, you don't really spend any time trying to get to know you don't come to office hours. Um, you know, oftentimes for my office hours, I'll have the best student and the worst students that would cut, that would need something. And that usually yeah. escalates at the very end of the semester, like the last week when they need something. And that's not the right approach. It just doesn't really work. I think it's, it's hard to do, but like you said, Joe, you can't overcame it is you have to talk to your faculty. Students don't realize we have many different hats. We don't just teach, you know, that's a part of my job, but research is a big part of my job. And so we'll have students who come and say, have you ever done any research? And I'm like, holy cow, we, they don't even know we do research. Yeah. And so that was me. You know, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you just don't understand how many different hats your faculty members wear. But here's the thing, they are so well connected in the space they exist in. So if you don't use the, the advantage of your mentors or your teachers network connection you're, to all these different people and labs and companies and everything, you're really losing out. I mean, you're really missing a big part of what can help you get a future job or get to the next level. So, so number one would be for the student to approach faculty and just speak with them. Even if you don't have something specific to talk about, make something up, make it work, come to office hours. 
read a paper that we recently wrote. Many academics like to talk about their research. Maybe that's the only thing they like to talk about. So find a paper, bring it in and ask one question from it. And that'll open up a lot of more conversations. And then the other thing with that is if you know that faculty member, they can now write a reference letter for you. If I don't know you, I can hardly write a reference letter. I say, yes, yeah. you were in my class and you received this grade. But if I know who you are and that you wanted to help or contribute, or then you get involved in my research in some way as a volunteer or even a paid student to work on some projects, that's where you get a better reference, obviously, because I, I would know you better or whoever your faculty members would know you a lot better. So that's, that's basically number one. When you get to grad school, the next step is the biggest mistake I see is not approaching that faculty member before you apply to the university. So sometimes students will apply, get in, and then once they're here, tell me that, that they want to work with me. And at that point, I've already taken students. I mean, yeah. I know the next crop a year early. So it's really, you've got to get in the game early and figure out which labs you might want to do. So students say, well, how the heck do I know that? Well, you got to do some PubMed work. All right. So in a typical paper in our field, nutrition, exercise, physiology, the first author or the last author is typically the lead of the lab. And most times, uh, most times a senior faculty member will be the last author on a paper. So people don't know that. It's like, you might think, oh, they, they contributed the least. Well, it's probably their lab. And the mm -hmm. first author is probably the student who ran the project in most cases. The corresponding author is always listed as well. So if you just keep reading papers just for fun, and then you see the same names pop up, that's probably the lab you want to approach. Yeah. And then you can say, do you have funding? Do you, are you looking for students? Here's my background. In our field, there's a good chance you can go to school very inexpensively or even for free if you're good enough and you play the game right. And a lot of that is networking, contacting faculty who have funding, starting the process super early. And I'd say that the last part about in this piece would be email again. We get bombarded with emails and calls and things from people who want something daily. You know, and everybody does. I'm not saying we're more busy than others, but that's just the reality of it. And so if you don't get a response, be patient and write again and then write again. So yeah. you need to be a little bit squeaky, not annoying, just a little squeaky to remind us that you are interested in talking. And then uh, usually that results in a phone call or a Zoom or something where we can have an initial conversation. And then I can tell you before you waste the 50 bucks on the application fee, if I have room in the lab or not. And that's, that's a huge advantage knowing that coming into either the master's app, but particularly the PhD. Yeah, that's great advice, man. Honestly, advice that I wish I would have had when I was an undergrad. <laughs> and a, a lot of the viewers here are not that young, but I definitely have some younger viewers that hopefully are going to benefit from that information. But one thing I think you mentioned that is applicable, not just to academics, but really any field, if you want to get into something is like being willing to ask for what you want, right? Because I feel like oftentimes we're so intimidated. I know for me, it was really intimidating to reach out to you or to reach out. Well, Dr. Ajmandi actually asked me if I'd be his student, but it's intimidating because you see these like larger than life figures that have accomplished so much and you feel like they're way up here and you're way down here. And it can be really intimidating to ask, right? People all the time ask me like, how did you get in contact with this person? Or how do you work for Lane Norton? And whenever I get that question, I'm like, I just asked, I just sent an email, be nice admire their work, 
say that you want to follow in a similar career path, explain why. And usually people who are very accomplished in their line of work tend to be very humble and kind and also want to help people who are passionate about the same things they are. So again, and I say that's applicable to like any aspect in life, because just asking for what you want is really powerful and people don't do it, right? It's like, oh, I want this, but how do I do it? It's like, find somebody doing it and ask how you can get there. And they're going to yeah. give you a roadmap, right? So hopefully that is really helpful. Um, well, I'll tell you though, that's, that's, that's the question that also gets missed. So I can't tell you how many conferences I've been at where we finish a lecture and you get off the stage and you have some people waiting to talk to you. And oftentimes the question isn't that, do you have a lab opening? What are you working on? I'm interested. How do I get there? It's, can I have a selfie? <laughs> and yeah. I don't know who you are. You know, it's a yeah. different question. Like get your questions asked and answered before you take the selfie. Because you need to have some of those if you want that career path. Yeah. Uh, I think that's helpful. No, you certainly have to be strategic about it. Another question that I think you could provide some really good insight on is oftentimes, you know, and I have friends who are in this situation currently who perhaps started their career already, or maybe even haven't, but are interested in the idea of pursuing a PhD, but they don't necessarily understand what the pros and cons are. And they know that long-term they don't necessarily want to be in an academic environment. Could you maybe touch on like, you know, what, what are some considerations that you should think about if you want to do a PhD? What are some of the positives, perhaps some of the negatives as well, because everything has positives and negatives. And then for somebody who perhaps isn't interested and they don't want to necessarily be just an academic, what are some, some other options you have, right? Because I think that's one of the things that you really helped me with in terms of opening my eyes, because I always thought you're training in and what your training when you do your PhD is exclusively to be a professor. And in many ways it is, but like you taught me, you have many skills that are very transferable to other things, right? Like you did stuff with supplement companies. You had a consultation company. These are all different things that people don't think about. I'd love for you to touch on those. Yeah. It's a, I mean, that's a ton um, to get into. And I think it's important because the PhD isn't for everybody. You know, the, yeah. the, the joke is the PhD stands for pilot higher and deeper. And it's like this process where you just get buried a lot of times in the mix, particularly if you don't have the right mentor to sort of guide you through some of the, you know, the, the problems and, and traps that you know might be coming up. And so kind of relating to the last question is if you're going to go somewhere, don't just talk to the PI, like the, that would be the principal investigator, the one who runs the lab, talk to the students and the graduates and what was their experience? Because that can tell you so much about if you want to join that lab. Because what I tell you is my perspective on it, not the student perspective. And so mm. that's important. Now, if you're doing the PhD, I, I've actually seen a lot on social media lately where people are pretty down on, on the PhD experience. It can be a lot, you know, it, it can feel like you're a grunt worker, just, you know, working for someone else for pennies because you, you're not paid well as a student. You get a graduate student stipend if you're lucky or yeah. a research assistant stipend. I tell you, it is better. It's better than it was when I was going through for sure. And yeah. the generation before that would say the same thing, but we're sort of training this environment to be scientists. And so, like you said, most people do the PhD because they want to be an academic, a, a teacher at a university or a research scientist. And that's usually what we're doing. And we're training you in skills and, and very specific lab skills yeah. that take a long time to master so that you can then have a lab that carries on that same tradition. That's the most common path. Yeah. The students who have, I've had 
12 PhD students graduated in the last 14 years from my lab or so. They do all kinds of things. Some go to supplement companies. Some have gone to straight academics, some at different levels. So some have done postdocs at high-powered institutions. Some have gone on to be more of a teaching school of faculty members. Some have gone on to start their own businesses. Some have gone on to sports sciences in the professional sports. So what I do is I meet with the students and I say, what do you want out of this experience? And sometimes they know, sometimes they don't, but we, do, we have that meeting every uh, so often. And then we tailor their experience to that so I can get them more experience yeah. in the lines they want to have. That's my lab. You got to ask for those things. A lot of yeah. faculty members might not ask you those questions, but hopefully they are. And, and if they are, that's a big advantage to doing the PhD is just more doors open for you with that. The other advantages are it's like, for better or worse, it's, it's more credibility. You have yeah. a PhD. So people think you know more. And, yeah. and many times that's true, but it's also not always true. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, yes, I think everyone who's done a PhD knows uh, yeah. people who've sort of snuck through the cracks a little bit. It does add that instant sort of credibility. And that's, that's helpful in some scenarios for sure. It, it does provide you a way, as you mentioned earlier, to think and critically think about anything, topics, questions, reading, especially how you interpret things. You know, the, one of the big mistakes I see is, especially on social media, is people only read the abstract. Mm. We call those abstract scientists. They don't read the paper. And, and there's so many more details in the yeah. paper than you could put into an abstract that has word limits. Yeah. Then you just can't write everything. And so if you actually read the paper, sometimes it disagrees with, it would, you would disagree with what the conclusion is out of the abstract. Or there's just a nuance that makes it make no sense. The other thing is you're trained to think so critically that you almost have this negative perspective on everything you read. And yeah. so I have to tell my students when we do this exercise in classes, people work really, really, really hard to publish these papers. So when we review them, because we part of my job is reviewing other people's work, I usually am like, I see how much work went into this. I yeah. appreciate the effort. And then you can just be a little more positive about what they are yeah. trying to accomplish. And, and then sometimes you still say, however, you didn't have a control group, so yeah, we yeah, can't yeah. use this. But in, in, every, in any case, there's a, either a student who's doing that with little guidance or um, it's just it's the wrong fit for that journal. So anyway, the, the point is we were critically thinking, we kind of training people to be negative. And I think we need to spin that a little bit where you can be critical, but also positive and helping someone along. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a positive if you go through the PhD to get out of it. Uh, on, on the negative sides, I, people mostly complain about finances. That's what I see more than anything and workload. Those are trouble you could have in any career. So I don't know that it's specific to the PhD. If yeah. you start at a certain level, you might not get paid enough and you might be doing too much work. Is it something that needs to be fixed in academics? Probably. I don't know how fast that's going to happen where you can pay someone a little bit more. And my approach to that has always been to include students as part of my team. I run basically what I consider as a small business. We're dependent on grants. I need my team to work on all of that. And I would always approach it as I work with you. You don't work for me. We yeah. work together to solve problems. We all need, and I take the very best students who can do things that I can't. I have so many students over the years that have a skill that I don't have that makes our team better. And that is how we make a name for ourselves at the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine, where we're growing tremendously all the time, adding new affiliates and, and projects and research scientists and things. And 
that approach has been very good. So yeah, you know, to recap, I guess positives are you get the credibility, you get a great way of thinking about things. And I think it's a really nice career to have if you stay in the traditional road route. On the negatives, probably financially, unless you're creative and probably workload, but you can manage that if you talk to your major professor and set expectations early. That's not going to help every single scenario. There are certainly cases that you hear about where someone's being just absurd and how they're working with their students, but um, mostly that should be a, a benefit. And then I think the last thing you had mentioned about the PhD is what else can you do with it? And yeah, yeah, we're training you to be scientists. So like when a student comes to me out of the gate and says, I don't want to do science. I'm like, well, I don't know if I want you to do a PhD with me. I need to teach you some skills and teach you how to be a scientist. But if you don't say that out of the gate, then halfway through, you're telling me, I love science. I just, what other options are, are there than being yeah. an academic at a university? Yeah. And then that's where you could have these conversations. So like, obviously you're doing a great job of it, Joey. You've got such a good following and a good career and you're really helping people. But you probably didn't think of that four or five years ago that you'd have a career no. like this. It's a yeah. totally different path. And it helps me to have former students and postdocs like yourself where I can say, Hey, I used to work with Joey. Look what he's doing. He's making a yeah. career out of, is that what you like to do? And now I've got enough graduates where I can say, do you want to do sports science in the NFL? Yeah. Do you want to work at a university? Do you want to work for a supplement company? And I won't see myself as like a matchmaker for <laughs> students. And like, what do you want to do? Like just yesterday, yeah. I connected a student with some uh, UFC and fight nutritionists because that's what the student wanted to do. And that's I know some of those people. So just connect them and then they can carry on. The creative part's important too, Joey. So there are ways you can use a PhD in like nutritional sciences for a company. You can use it as the person who understands research and development strategies gotcha. for a company who's expanding or trying to acquire new products. Supplement companies also often need formulators, scientists, people who can translate what they're doing to a general population. Medical writing is a, an area that a lot of people don't think about that's popular now because you can typically do that from home but you yeah. usually require a PhD so you can understand the science. So these companies put out science, they need someone to take it, write it up and put it into a journal or write it up and put it into like a periodical newsletter or mm-hmm. something like that. So many different areas and you do have to be creative, but it, uh, it all starts with like speaking to your faculty member and creating this network where you're not afraid to ask people how they got where they are, like you said earlier. Um, social media opens that door. Yeah, You can tweet somebody, Instagram yeah. message somebody, Facebook message somebody that you would never normally have opportunity to meet. And there you go. Yeah, the social media thing is really cool. I know, I know most people tend to have a negative view on it and I understand why, but there's a ton of positives that come with it too. Like the ability to connect with people that you would have never had a chance of connecting with before, or maybe you would have, but it would have just been a, a lot more difficult, right? Like I just published uh, an episode on the podcast with Stan Efforting. I'm not sure if you know who Stan Efforting is, um, yep. the rhino. And I've been watching him since I was in high school. He's like one of my role models. And I just sent him a message on Instagram. And super nice guy. He's like, yeah, I'll be on your podcast. So it is really cool from that perspective. Talking about the the whole PhD thing, I think two things I want to add to that one of the quote unquote negatives, I guess, but it's also applicable to any career if you want to be good at it, is that it's very time consuming, right? It's going to take up like a considerable amount of time of your life. So you should be 
very certain that you want to do this because it's really sad when you see people go two, three, maybe even four years in and then don't finish because maybe it wasn't the right choice in the first place, right? I think the biggest positive, and like you mentioned, there are anomalies where people sneak their way through without really like doing what needs to be done. Um, but I think one of the really big positives is that you can feel confident that you're an expert in your field, right? Because that's one of the things that I've noticed, you know, I do a lot of this social media stuff, but people are like, how do you know what's real information and what's not good? Inf and like, what's bad information? It's like, well, I know how to go to the source and like discern what's good information and what's not. And I spent my whole life studying this stuff up to now, right? So like, you can feel really confident in your abilities and you can feel really confident that you're an actual expert in your field. Because I guess even like through undergrad, you learn a ton of information. Even in your master's, you learn a ton more information. But what you don't learn is how to question that information, right? And then one of the really cool things that you learn when you're doing a PhD is how much we actually don't know. Because up to that point, you're simply fed the information that we do know right? You take courses on different topics, and then they teach you what you know about that topic. And you finish, you're like, okay, we know everything about this. And then you start to see what the gaps are. And so it's just like a, a higher level of thinking, really. And although what I do mostly now, which is coaching, a big part of coaching isn't just your knowledge, it's psychology too, right? And learning how to talk to people and learning how to help people stay accountable and adherence. But a big part of it is giving like, actual recommendations that are scientifically proven, right? Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. And I see so many people in my field perhaps give recommendations without like nuance and not necessarily bad recommendations that are going to be harmful, but they don't understand like the nuances of things, right? And you can argue that to many degrees, you don't need to know every single nuance, but it is really helpful when you work with people whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a group setting or doing consults, people asking questions and feeling really confident that you can answer those questions and provide the appropriate nuance around that question. So if you're interested in being like a leading expert in whatever it is that you do, you need to be an expert in your field in terms of the knowledge that you have, right? And I think that's one of the biggest benefits. Like you don't really get that with just a master's degree, unfortunately. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah I, I agree. I, um, I still think that there's this, place in anybody's heart where you have this little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes you're yeah. like, oh my goodness how am i doing this right now even with advanced degrees yeah um, but it certainly helps and I, I think that you do have at least something to lean on like i had a lot of education in this space and i've been teaching now these things for longer than i was doing the education which is crazy 
And so, yeah, that certainly helps with that part of it as a positive, without a doubt. Yeah. Since we're on the topic of research, and I want to transition into talking about some of the work that you do in your lab, and some of the work that you have done perhaps over the past five or 10 years, I want to start this off by talking about research itself, right? Because since we're talking about social media, doing research, all of these things, oftentimes people don't necessarily understand what like quality research is and what like, not that it's not quality research, but it's perhaps not very applicable, right? You'll see oftentimes even like really prominent names, whether it's in the social media space or whatever space it is, make these claims about health or nutrition or fitness. And they provide sources for their research, but perhaps it's not the appropriate type of study to source to, to, to reference, right? So maybe we can just quickly over the next five minutes or so just discuss if you are trying to perhaps learn about a topic, right? Or you're listening to somebody talk about a topic, whether it's on social media podcasts, whatever they're talking about, um, I don't know, fasting for health benefits or protein or whatever it is. And then they are referencing some research. What is kind of like the hierarchy of research? What should we actually be paying attention to? And then what's not very transferable to, to us? Golly, that's a tough question, Joey. And it's something that we battle all the time as people who have spent a lot of their lives in this space. And the thing is the psychology of it, like you mentioned, it's so hard to get people away from their preconceived thoughts on a topic. Mm-hmm. And nutrition exercise are one of the hardest because in some other fields, it's a little more abstract, but because we all eat and walk and move and yeah. exercise a little bit, everybody kind of believes they're this expert. And so many times I'll see testimonials as the thing that people look to as the pinnacle in their post for some success. Yeah. Now, now those are nice to see, but that's not a research perspective, you would never put a testimonial as your top source of what you're looking at. Um, And so, yeah, that's where we look at the, at the actual research. So we're looking at PubMed, we're looking at maybe Google Scholar, we're trying to find actual research articles. And then within that, it gets even more nuanced. But I think for the sake of the audience, they keep it clean. It's like, go with the scientific papers first that have to do, that have a population that's similar to you, what you're trying to get out of it. And then I would go sort of down the path to, you know, maybe more of these anecdotes and things people are talking about. But if you don't start with the research space, you're missing it. The other part is sometimes people go to cell culture or animal models first, which is really, really good research, but it's much harder to make that apply to your situation as a human intact organism. In a dish, we can do things I've seen recently, you know, you can point out where, you know, uh, artificial, artificial sweeteners and some crazy concentration do something in a dish, but we, we're not eating 900 packets of Splenda or whatever. So no, yeah, yeah. there's there's uh, the human data I would look at first. A lot of people like meta-analyses and these things that, that cover many different papers in one. That allows you to take not just one paper and say it's a great paper, it's a cool, interesting result. It's 30 papers or 50 papers looked at this and this is the the outcome of all of the data that have to exist in that space. Personally, I publish randomized control trials, and that's where we're looking to add evidence to our work with pre-sleep feeding, for example, or whatever the topic is of our, our intervention. But I would start there and then sort of go down from the human data where it's either clinical based or meta-analyses. And then I would look at animals and stuff to support theory. But 
if I'm a listener to this, I would probably listen to you, Joey. I'd tune in and say, <laughs> what's Joey think? You know, or go to some of the existing resources that are there where people who are been in the business for a long time have the street credibility and can also produce a product. You know, we can talk about content we produced at the end of this if you want, but there are resources that exist that are either cheap, free, inexpensive, or or they have a cost, but they're all really good resources from people that we would yeah. say are credible folks. Yeah. I'd actually be happy to probably share like five of those resources in the description of the podcast episode at the end as links for people to search. Examine.com is one that comes to mind. That's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's funny that you mentioned to come to me, Mike, I'm not exaggerating. I've had people send me messages saying, my doctor recommended I get this surgery. What do you think? I, I trust anything you say. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know. And, and like, it's hilarious, but people like really do kind of like build a bond with the people that they follow online. They yeah. trust everything they say. So although I really appreciate when people really trust me, definitely don't just like blindly trust anybody a hundred percent. Right. Absolutely. And you touched on, on something really, really cool because when I was asking the question, I was thinking hierarchy of research, like cell culture, animal, and then human data up top. And I wasn't even thinking about anecdote. But when you do think of like social media, anecdote is like the most popular thing, right? And people are like, well, this guy did this. Guys, everything works, right? And sometimes the thing is like, they're doing this one thing, they're doing a whole host of other things that perhaps are actually causing the benefit. And they're saying it's this one thing. And that's the benefit of having controlled trials that you typically control for all of those extraneous variables, right? What I really wanted to touch on was the difference between human research and then non-human research. And that's why I was saying that like, it's still quality work. It may just not be very applicable, right? If we talk about the topic of fasting, for example, yes, there are some animal studies that show that if you fast a fly for eight hours, it tends to slightly increase their lifespan, but their lifespan might be 24 or 48 hours and fasting for eight hours is like a third of their life, right? So the applicability isn't really there, but unfortunately people make really strong claims off of those things, right? They make really strong claims off of those things. They're like, well, look at this study. And yeah, for somebody who doesn't know, they read the title of the study and they're like, fasting extends lifespan, whatever, not looking at the methods like you mentioned, perhaps just looking at the abstract, like, oh, fasted eight hours, that's what I need to do. And then these people also sell a product, right? If you're hungry during your fast, drink this shake, it doesn't break your fast. So it's like, you need to start looking at the correlations between these things. And I, I actually haven't published it yet, but I recorded an episode a solo episode on like red flags for like bad information, which I think is going to be really helpful. But another really interesting thing that you touched on is like, yeah, meta-analyses are very, very popular, right? And I understand why, because it culminates the majority of the research in a particular topic. And like you highlighted, I think it's a really good starting place to perhaps understand like, okay, what's the overarching consensus of like this particular topic of research, whether it's like protein intake on muscle growth or whatever it may be. But then going into the individual studies, because there's slight differences in methodology, like different doses, different populations, et cetera, that then you can start to discern like different things amongst different populations or different doses of protein or whatever it may be, right? But definitely that those nuances are hard to get into if you don't have an education in this stuff. But generally, if somebody makes a claim in humans, make sure that their claims are based off of human research. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the main thing, right? Which is like, sounds freaking obvious to even say but most people don't even look that far but it is it is so 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 important and again like you mentioned it's not to discredit the cell culture and animal work because that tends to be the base which we then use 
to perhaps examine things in humans, right? Most things, most mechanisms are discovered in cell culture studies, in animal studies, and then that forms the basis for human clinical trials. And it's important to have all kinds of research. That why That's why different types of research exist. But when we're going to make claims when it comes to health, longevity, fitness, it has to be specifically done in humans. And if we take that a step further, ideally, like you mentioned, in a population that's very similar to you, right? Because we can even talk about like the supplement industry, HMB, right? And I know there was all of like people who listen to this don't know this, but there was a, a series of like falsified publications on HMB. But after that, there's a pretty good evidence that HMB might be beneficial for older populations when it comes to muscle growth. Right. For a whole host of reasons. Older people tend to not eat sufficient protein, et cetera. But then, you know, like the HMB supplementation is starting to like pop up again. And people are like, what about HMB? And it's like, well, if you're young and you're healthy and you lift and you eat sufficient protein, it probably does nothing. So that's why like making sure that the research is population specific is really important as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I agree. Happy. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, that's a, probably the biggest thing that we see as well as individuals who will write to us and say, I saw this worked on so-and-so's podcast or whatever, and now I need to go outside, look in the sunlight, walk backwards, stand on my hands, and <laughs> then I'm going to, and it gets too complicated. You know, there's so much yeah, advice. Yeah. It's like, golly, take it back a second. And so in a lot of the work we've done over all these years, and in some of my content that's available online for folks, there's one common theme, which is like, we have to take small steps. You have to start small and progress because taking someone from doing nothing to doing everything is a recipe for disaster if you yeah. do it fast. And, and so we always end up with these like small change theory, which is, is, is really where I think it's going to be most beneficial is like, do the thing that feels like you're doing nothing, but it's going to make the biggest impact. Yeah. The thing you can stick to, you know, some of this started years ago when, uh, Jean Berardi started precision nutrition and they were talking about, you know, on a scale of one through 10, how likely is it that you can walk five days a week for 30 minutes? And if you don't say like a nine or a 10, don't do it. Scale yeah. back, you know, on, can you walk for two days? Okay. Not, nah, I can definitely do that. We'll start there. Yeah. And so these small change things, I feel like are really a, an important thing to discuss in the context of research, but also what's actually applicable to someone trying to make change. Yeah, that's the same approach that I take with all of my clients. It's what I call like a small habits approach, right? Where it's like, okay, we identify the goal. We identify all the behaviors that are going to help you get there. Now let's start with one or two of those behaviors and slowly build upon them as they become more habitual. And not only that, starting them small and then building upon them, right? Like somebody might say, I want to lift five times per week and they don't lift at all. Let's start with two or three. If that goes well for three or four weeks, then we can bump it up, right? So, and that isn't as sexy as like going all in, but it, it helps with long-term adherence. Like most people, the, the truth is that behavior change is really difficult for all of us, right? Yeah. Um, and you only make it harder if you try to change all of your behaviors at once. <laughs> so if you just try to tackle one thing at a time, it's definitely going to be much easier. It might take you perhaps slightly longer to get to your goal, but I think it drastically increases the, the likelihood of you actually achieving your goal. 
Um, but enough about Without the basics because I talk about the basics way too much and I feel like sure. people are probably bored of listening to me talk about the basics. I really want to talk about the research that you've done in your lab over the past decade. I know you've done a lot of really cool work with pre-sleep protein, collagen, et cetera, right? Betaine. And so I want to talk about some of these perhaps more niche topics and we can talk about some of the main findings, some of the really cool things that you've found in your lab. Sure. And and let the audience know the caveat is that, guys, these things are important. They matter. But again, the basic fundamentals are where you want to start. Once you have those nailed down, and then perhaps you want to take your fitness or your body composition to the next level, or you may have like some more niche things that you really want to optimize, that's where these smaller variables start to be really important. But anyways, I'll let you take it away and maybe we can just start about talk about general general areas that you've been really interested in and have been looking at, and then we can get into the specifics of those. Sure. Yeah. So what's 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 really a pleasure is at the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine, where I'm the director, we get to do a huge portfolio of work. Yeah. And and we didn't talk about it earlier, but a lot of times faculty or someone would tell you in academics, like you get in a lane and you stay in your lane and you create this you know, this series of studies off of one topic. And that has worked well for a lot of people. That just wasn't how I worked. I was interested in so many different areas. And so what's great is that at our institute, we have clinical work, we have real applied work in general pop folks, and then we also have athlete work. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these different buckets and I just couch it all under human performance. And that has yeah. to do with every single thing we do. And so we have a, we sort of started in clinical where we're, where I was working with others in collaborative projects to do long-term interventions with changing protein intake. Now this was right, nearly 20, 25 years ago almost. And so we were looking at increasing protein doses for over like 12 weeks of training in overweight or obese women. That was where we started. That's where I sort of cut my teeth in clinical work. And those studies were fantastic because we actually trained people in the gym. That was way back when the Body for Life program was becoming popular. And we were studying the Body for Life program, which included resistance training three days a week and HIT training, like on a treadmill, like high intensity interval training three days a week. So it was six days of exercise, but it wasn't very long. The HIT days are only 20 minutes a piece. And the resistance training was sort of new to putting into these lifestyle changes for a long period of time outside of like bodybuilding, of course, yeah. um, and higher protein. So it was first time where I had seen where we were putting big protein doses into these people's lives. And so we started with 40% protein, which is above the uh, AMDR for people. And we had destroy some kidneys, man. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> that was bad when it was still controversial. I guess. That still yeah. Yeah. So we were doing this and we just saw tremendous success with that approach to include resistance training, include high intensity interval training and include higher protein in the diets mm -hmm. of these women. And I mean, the successes were fantastic, just eye-opening. But what, what I remember from that time was two things. One of them was many of the women were not happy because their body weight didn't always change. Yeah. At, at least not substantially, even though their body composition was yeah. far improved. I mean, we were losing lots of body fat, gaining muscle, but the body weight was minimally down, minimally yeah. over this period of time. And then I'm like, well, hey, are your clothes, how do you, how does it feel? Like, they're like, my yeah. clothes fit different. I, that all fits different, but I hadn't lost weight on the scale. And so that was like, 
eye-opening because I was a young man at the time, a young student. I was thinking, goodness, look at all these positive changes. And you're worried about the scale more than anything, despite all the positive. I mean, we saw lipid changes. We saw DEXA changes. It was just incredible. Strength changes were amazing. But it was like, wow, people really care about the weight part of it. And so I felt like, man, that's where we really need to see is a body composition weight discussion is is so kind of out of control. And so we've we've done a lot of work in this space with Paul Arciero again from Skidmore and then moved into some of our own work at ISSM. But 40% worked really well. It turns out 25% also worked really well in follow-up studies. So it's just all higher than what's currently recommended in our percentage approach. And then it in a grams per kg is probably what you always preach somewhere between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kg is really where it ended up in those in that series of studies. And along that same time, we were feeding people one more protein bolus in the evening. It just was part of the protocol. It wasn't the design. It just happened to get more protein. And then I started at FSU and, you know, I'd always eaten before bed and when I played collegiate sports people were eating before bed and these folks were lean and then i some of my friends were in bodybuilding arena and and bikini and stuff and they always were eating later and i'm like what's the deal here like at that time social media was like the biggest loser uh Mm -hmm. tv show and those trainers were always saying stop eating at this time stop eating at this time yeah and so that was how it started i i wanted to do a study on it and i thought Let's see if there's a stop time. Like what happens if we have a protein bolus before bed, like was common in in the sort of bodybuilding area. And people that I knew were having like, you know, eggs before bed and things that were sort of higher protein or protein centric type foods. So we did. And we spent the last 14 years doing work in that space. At the beginning, it was just our lab. And then one of the lab overseas, Luke Van Loon's lab, he was doing more muscle protein synthesis work with pre-sleep feeding and we were doing more fat metabolism and, and some performance and and some metabolism changes. So between the two labs, which had a long run of really cool work, and now it's not just us two, there's you know probably 15 labs doing this stuff now. But it turns out that in all of our work to date, eating protein-centric drink or food before bed doesn't do anything to fat metabolism at all. And we are testing it with microdialysis and all these intricate yeah. techniques. When the protein bolus is small, I call it, yeah. now we're giving about 40 grams at a time. So you're looking at you know less than 200 calories yeah. in one last little feeding 30 minutes before going to sleep. And that's how we've run all of our work. Many, many, many studies have come in the similar space. And it turns out that you can digest it overnight. You can use it to grow muscle. Your muscle protein synthesis actually goes up all night when you are doing this approach. And people who are starting a resistance training program, if you choose to do pre-sleep feeding, and this example was 40 grams of, roughly 40 grams of protein, it also included some carbohydrate, people purposely trying to gain muscle and strength, benefits all around. And and really, I don't know that it's right necessarily the pre-sleep part that's most important. It's that you're feeding one more time. And you're getting one more time in the day to have protein coming in to meet your total daily goals. And you set yourself up to perhaps help all through the night with this period of time when you normally would be potentially catabolic, probably catabolic, um, instead of anabolic or neutral through that whole period of time. And there's now performance data. Uh, If you exercise in the evening, it's probably more important to have pre-sleep cheating. 
Then if you exercise in the morning, also, if you like it, then you can yeah. do it. If you don't like it, then don't do it. Our focus now is in sleep. People keep hitting me up about, does it mess with sleep? Does it mess with sleep? Yeah. You know how important sleep is. In all of our work and the other work that's been done in this exact space, we have not seen any sleep issues or changes. However, we haven't used the best methods to do it. And so that's what we're heavily leaning into now this coming year to look more at what does it do to sleep paradigm? Is it changing sleep onset latency? Like how long it takes to fall asleep or, or wake episodes or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's super cool, man. There's so many thoughts going through my head as you were talking about a couple of different topics there. I'm happy that you touched on the fact that like you haven't seen any negative outcomes with sleep because I feel like that's the one thing people are worried about, right? It's like, oh, does it affect my sleep quality knowing how important sleep is? And I really do think it's individual, right? Like some people are fine. I know that you and I have talked about this. And it's so funny because sometimes like there's so much research in an area and then the answer is like, well, it just depends on how you feel, right? And that is the truth, right? Like I have a buddy, Mike, who if he eats, he cannot go to sleep for at least four hours acid reflux, a whole ton of issues. Obviously, he has some digestive issues, but some people don't get really good quality sleep when they eat particularly higher calorie meals, right? But like you were mentioning, a 30 to 40 gram bolus of protein is a pretty small snack, doesn't take a whole long to digest if it's a simple digesting protein, like a whey protein, for example, and it can be beneficial, right? I think um, a couple things I wanted to touch on here. First off, the, the eating at night makes you fat thing. The, there's a lot of correlational data on this, right? And I, uh, a lot of these ideas come from this correlational data. When you look at general pop, people who tend to eat more food later at night tend to be more overweight and obese. That doesn't mean it's causal, right? It doesn't mean that eating at night makes you overweight. I think there's two really big important variables here that people tend to overlook. One is what kind of foods do people eat late at night, right? Like, what are you doing late at night? You're watching some TV, you're chilling, you're unwinding, you're having some snacks. You're probably not eating some lean protein and a salad like before before bed. Unless you listen to this podcast, you probably are. But most <laughs> people aren't, right? So it's like food choices. There's very calorically dense foods being consumed at night. Again, not that those foods inherently make you fat, but they're very calorically dense, so they're very easy to overconsume. Another really important variable, and this is something you've prob probably seen, Mike, there's really cool data showing that people who tend to eat more of their caloric intake earlier in the day seem to have higher energy expenditure throughout the day, right? Maybe that's slight effects on metabolic rate. I would argue that it's also perhaps that the person feels more energized, so they just inherently move more throughout the day, right? One of the biggest differences between like overweight and obese adults and, and healthy lean adults is our neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis. People who are leaner tend to just move more. This is not intentional exercise. This is just like, I'm sitting here, I'm moving my arms, I'm fidgeting my feet. Perhaps if you eat more earlier in the day, you have more energy, you move more throughout the day, energy expenditure is slightly higher, which makes it easier to maintain a healthy body weight, right? So I'm really happy you touched on that. And then when it comes to, to protein, I'm also really happy that you mentioned that it's just perhaps the, the benefit of having another bolus, right? Because there's, there's a pretty good research now indicating that if you have adequate total protein, protein timing perhaps doesn't matter all that much. But I, I, I also don't like when people say that it doesn't matter at all because it's, it's going back to like that black or white thinking it works or it doesn't work, right? And there's more nuance than that. The reality is that the, the effects of protein timing make sense mechanistically. 
right? Like ideally you want to spread out your protein in four or five boluses throughout the day because that muscle protein synthesis response seems to be maximized with 30 or 40 grams of protein. So if you're having, let's say 200 grams of protein and you're having those in three servings of like 80 gram bolus, theoretically, it makes sense that it might be a little bit better to, to spread out. And then it's like, okay, if the benefit is only like a, a 1% benefit, right? It, we can we can agree that it's probably a very, very minor benefit, if at all. It's like, what kind of study duration would you need to actually be able to tease out those very small benefits, right? But I do like to tell people like, hey, number one, get your total protein intake in. Two is if you can and you want to focus on timing, spread it out evenly throughout the day. We don't know how beneficial it is, but mechanistically, it makes sense that it might be slightly beneficial. And the big thing that you touched on is, is if you're going eight to 10 hours without eating before bed, you're going into a catabolic state, right? And having that bolus right before bed can be super helpful. So I'm really interested in seeing future research that you do on this with like better sleep measurements, because I know that's like the one really big thing. People are like, oh, I don't want to eat anything because it messes up my sleep. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's I controversial. We see people like big companies now that measure this stuff. I've seen it from Whoop and Gatorade and others that are putting out there, don't eat before bed. It messes with yeah. recovery. It messes with sleep. And I always am like, we don't know that. It's not, that yeah. is not set in stone. There's no paper that directly shows that. That's anecdotal or it's claimed from internal data. It's like, all right, well, if it's true, let's do the study because yeah. we need to know that. And that's yeah. what's an advantage for anyone who's a real scientist is like, your opinion changes if the data changes. So, yeah. so maybe we do this again next year and I'm thinking, all right, now I know. Maybe we yeah. shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This exact moment, there's no reason not to from everything that I described. Yeah. And from a recovery perspective, you know, it's so funny because like sometimes recommendations we give to the general public are very different than recommendations for athletes, like consuming simple carbohydrates, probably pretty good for recovery, right? Eating before bed. It's funny because one of my coworkers, Pat, who you've spoken to, he works mainly with athletes, right? And he'll work with athletes who like lift in the morning, have a basketball game at night or whatnot. And sometimes games can go on till 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And he he works a lot with these athletes and they're really hesitant to eat after their, their sporting event. And they're like, oh, no, I need to go to bed because sleep is really important. And Pat always tells them, like, the way you should be thinking about this is, like, you want to fuel to recover from that training and fuel for your next session. You don't want to go into your next session underfueled, underrecovered. Right. So he always preaches the importance of like, hey, even if your game's done at 10, you're working out again at nine in the morning. Right. You need to eat before going to bed. And maybe it's not a huge meal because some people are impacted. Like you mentioned, maybe 40, 50 grams of protein, maybe some simple carbs, something that's easy digesting can be very beneficial. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious. And that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? 
visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. Another topic you've done some work on that I really want to touch on because it's like a hot topic nowadays is collagen, right? So, so in the area of protein still, what are some of the cool findings you've seen with collagen protein? I know there's a lot of nuance there with the type of collagen protein that you're consuming, right? Let's go ahead and get into that a little bit. Yeah, so about five or six years ago, we wanted to look at in this space, we're always trying to see what's the next protein thing that's coming along that we might be able to do some work with and do it well. And that's kind of how we pride our work is it's like, it's going to be a long haul, but we're going to do it right. And so what we did with the collagen studies were, we decided that the studies weren't long enough to really show what we think was potentially possible given the state of the literature on collagen particularly around joint pain. So you might have people listening who have joint pain and mm-hmm. they may be used to taking like glucosamine or glucosamine chondroitin or something to try to help with joint pain. And that's even controversial if that stuff works. But we decided to do nine months of a research study with collagen. And this was led by one of my former doctoral students, Shaloa Kiyakovsky. She's phenomenal. And she did all of this work. So I need to throw her a bone because She's just phenomenal and she's doing a postdoc now in the same in the same areas. But what everything that she was working on in our lab with this study was was looking at dosing. So zero, 10, or 20 grams. So we had three groups over nine months. So that's a quite a long time. And every single month they checked in for blood work and range of motion tests and some body comp perform, all these different things that we were measuring. And the take-home message from the collagen work, at least in our hands, you know, mm-hmm. it's only one study, but it's in our hands, was that it seemed most effective at a 10-gram dose, not a 20-gram dose. That was interesting. We didn't, I thought 20 would be better because sometimes you get this mentality of more is better. But 10 seemed to be the one that had the most benefit on most outcomes. However, the benefits seemed to be not only, but I'd say predominantly limited to the people who exercise the most. This was a free living study of middle-aged lifelong exercisers. And that could be golf, it could basketball, that could be triathletes at the master's level. So they're all active. But when we looked at activity level and it was just minutes per week, if you hit the dose of like, basically our magic number was 180 minutes per week, which isn't all that long of physical activity, of moderate physical activity or more, those people had the benefit for joint pain. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who exercised less than that didn't have quite the same benefit. Some did, but mostly were limited to this group. So for collagen, it seems like it's probably most effective if if you're exercising Mm -hmm. at least 180 minutes a week and the 10 gram dose seemed to do it in our hands. What are some of the main supplements that are actually helpful for performance? and building muscle, right? Because I think that's what my audience really cares about. And we can talk about direct things like creatine and protein powder, but perhaps some more niche things that are specific in in some contexts, right? I know you've done some work with modified carbohydrates, et cetera. That's not necessarily a supplement, but what are some of the things that that can provide some benefit that might be worth investing in if somebody has some extra cash they want to spend on supplements? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you know, in all these years of work, very rarely do I see a 
really great positive outcome. It's yeah. rare. In fact, it was a running joke in our lab for a long time that, you know, thank goodness we can publish negative results in our yeah. field because we need to know that yeah, these yeah, things yeah. don't work. We've done work with a lot of multi-ingredient supplements mm -hmm. in the muscle building space. Years ago, we did some of this with VPX as a company and we had some success, but they're all driven by like three things, creatine, caffeine, and then calorie content. And, and when we do those studies over and over, it just seems like those things are, are king. The other stuff's maybe doing something, but it's not carrying the load of these other heavy hitters uh, yeah. for sure. Now in our work, some of the more interesting things for these outcomes, we've done like these protein models for a long time. We've done these modified carbs, as you mentioned. Now that's not for muscle building perspective in our hands. We were doing it from an endurance perspective. Yeah and a lipolysis and insulin perspective. So from, if some of your audience are new to exercise or just starting, you might, you might see athletes eating, you know, these high sugar, easy digesting yeah. things all the time. And so what, what we tested was a product called you can super starch, which is a modified starch to be very, very, very slow digesting mm. and therefore not spike glucose and not spike insulin. So for somebody who doesn't want those things spiking, maybe they're obese and diabetic and they want a product that might give them something during a long exercise training session if they're getting into it, that could be a good fuel for somebody like that. The cool thing is that this is, again, where medicine and, and sports nutrition overlap. Yeah, That product was developed for people with glycogen storage disease, people who do not have glycogen stored in their muscles or the liver. So they have to take a product that's very slow drip so that they have some type of glucose to use throughout daily life. And athletes saw that and were like, well, if it works for that, yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. Low grip of glucose. Yeah. So that's that was cool. So we started to do some tests on it. We did it in cyclists and runners. Essentially, I guess the bottom line for those was it was not really different from our normal like a comparator, which was Gatorade in these studies. Mm -hmm. uh, if you use it at a lower dose, it was worse. If you use it the same dose, there was no difference in performance, but you had more GI upset, mm -hmm. which is against what claims are. So that yeah. was a new interesting finding. And we've also fed it before bed because I thought, well, instead of waking up super early for a race, could you just have it before bed, have this slow drip of glucose and still run your five or 10K and not have to wake up early, which could cause other issues. So we did it in that model and, and we saw no difference in that study either for performance outcomes. So it's a tool you can use if you don't want glucose and insulin to spike. And that's consistent in all these studies, your yeah. fat oxidation goes up during exercise, your carb oxidation goes down, your glucose is very, very steady. Insulin is very, very steady. But again, exercise fat oxidation doesn't really mean much for whole body yeah. fat loss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was all of the work in that space, which is pretty fun. Yeah. Would you argue then that for somebody doing high intensity exercise, like sprints or really high intensity circuit training or something like that, simpler carbohydrates may be more effective? Yeah. You could make that argument. The only caveat with our work is we are using very high level runners and cyclists. Mm -hmm. And so they, they were running like a 1435 K, which is very fast. And so that is high intensity yeah. and, and they still didn't have trouble, but that's, and, but our people didn't have glycogen storage disease. So they had their own muscle glycogen to use yeah. in that 5k example, but theoretically 
yes, if you're doing high intensity things over 80% or so, you probably want regular shit. Yeah, so you can have something readily available, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, this was an awesome conversation, Mike. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast. I always have a, a funny time saying like talking to everybody because it's me and you. But like, it's weird, man. Hundreds of people listen to this. And I'm just like chilling here in my kitchen recording. <laughs> but <laughs> hey, seriously, I think all the information that you've shared is extremely helpful. And I really, really enjoyed the beginning of the talk because you have really cool insights that many people don't, right? When it comes to academia, you've been doing it for so long now. And not just that, you've been a student, so you know the struggles of being a student, and you've worked with a ton of students. So I know that that information will be really helpful. Do you mind sharing if somebody wants to learn more about you, where they can find your social media and what your website is and all of that good stuff? I'll link them in the description anyways. Sure. Yeah. Well, Joe, you're trying to help me to grow this thing. So so uh, Instagram is just at Mike Ormsby. Just my name, at Mike Ormsby. Twitter is the same thing, at Mike Ormsby. So is Facebook. So you can find me there. Um, yeah, just trying to put out some of our research. And I really promote students a lot and the work we do. So that's kind of the, the, the slant, I guess, to what I'm trying to do is just show people sort of academic life and some of the research that we're doing, which is, which is fun. That's the best spot. If you want to learn about the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine, that's just uh, ISSM. Um, you can search that at FSU, uh, on the, on Google box, you'll find us there. And we have some of our studies there, the website, the affiliates, all the different program we have. If you're in or in around Tallahassee, you can actually come to our lab and pay for services and testing. So you could find that on the website as well. Uh, again, Institute of Sports Sciences and just search that on at FSU and you'll find us. Otherwise I have a course you can check out called changing body composition through diet and exercise. It's not a sexy title. It's, it's a 24, 30 minute lectures designed for everybody. And I take you through basically like one of my courses, but just super condensed 30 minutes each. So you can listen to it to or from work that's on Amazon or audible or whatever you, wherever you get those things. And then yeah, Joey helped me with a textbook. So we got a sweet textbook out for exercise <laughs> physiology. <laughs> if you want to see on where it's a sixth edition of exercise physiology with Denise Smith, Sharon Plowman and myself. And yeah, I think that's all the plugs for now, but yeah, check it out, follow us and you can see what we're doing that, uh, at Mike Wormsby or at FSU ISSM on social. Yeah. And one more thing I'd love for you to share, because actually a lot of people that, that follow my stuff, like going to conferences and learning more, what are some of the main conferences that you typically go to throughout the year? Yeah. So the biggest ones we have are the American college of sports medicine. So that's a national conference, but there's also local and regional opportunities to go to these things. So depending on where you live in the U.S., if, if you're listening in the U.S., you can go to a local one that happen once a year or the national conference, which will be in Boston next early June. The National Strength and Conditioning Association is another one, which happens yearly. They also have the same deal, local, regional, and the annual conference. And the International Society of Sports Nutrition is another one that I attend often. That's yearly. And there's also other pop-up ones that come online. You can check out their websites. So those are the primary ones. I'll be doing a speaking tour in Texas in September. Five universities, five schools. If you live in Texas, come out and check one of those out. I'll put some of that up on social media later in the summer for all the locations. Just like a lecture tour. And then I'll also be in Pennsylvania. So the, uh, the Mid-Atlantic ACSM, I'll be doing the keynote at that conference coming up in November. That's really exciting. Guys, 
please go and follow Mike. We're trying to get him to 10K followers. Uh, all jokes aside, if you guys really enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did if you listened to the whole thing so far, please take a second to leave a review and rate the podcast episode. It helps me a ton. And if you're listening on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to my channel. As always, thank you guys for listening and I'll catch you in next week's episode.